0: Thank you, Steve. Well, thank you so much. Uh, What a joy it is to be here already. I've enjoyed being able to meet many of you in the lobby and up and down these different aisles. This has been on my calendar for over a year, and I've been looking forward with great anticipation uh, to being here with you tonight and tomorrow. And then I'll also be preaching on Sunday morning at Grace Bible Church Um, I want to thank your pastor, Steve Swartz, who is one of our uh, excellent students at the Master's Seminary and the Doctor of Ministry program. He's so gifted and committed to the Word of God, and what a treasure he is to this community and to this church, and um, thank you for lending him to us. And I trust that every time he comes back, he's uh, a little sharper and even uh, pointed Uh, even more in the right direction. Well, our conference theme is the Trinity, and I can't think of a better theme for us to have uh, for this time today and tomorrow, because the Trinity is perhaps the cornerstone doctrine in all of Christianity. Everything, in one way or another, rests upon this magnificent truth of the Trinity, we believe as Christians that there is one God who exists in three persons. Those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal, and they are made of the very same essence and the very same nature. They each have different roles and responsibilities that they carry out in the economy of the Trinity, and yet they work together as though they are one. And so, tonight, I want to speak to you on the Trinity in salvation. Tomorrow afternoon, I will speak on the Trinity in sanctification. And so, what a joy it is for us tonight to look together into the Word of God on this very important subject. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 1. And tonight, as we look together into the Word of God, I want us to look at verses 3 through 14. It is a passage that no doubt is familiar to most of us here tonight, and yet it is an ocean so deep, it is a mountain so high that we can never plumb the depths nor reach the heights of all that is contained in this extraordinary passage of Scripture. I want to begin by reading what will be our focus tonight, Ephesians chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 3, the Trinity in salvation. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will." to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. It was theologian and church historian Ralph Kuyper who has written, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity is basic to the Christian religion. It is no exaggeration to assert that the whole of Christianity stands or falls with it. That is quite a statement, but it is a statement that is true. All of Christianity rises or falls with the doctrine of of the Trinity. Every major doctrine in one way or another rests directly upon the sturdy shoulders of the doctrine of the Godhead. The Trinity is the atlas that holds up a world of doctrinal truths in the Christian faith. And nowhere is this more clear and more important than in the doctrine of salvation. Salvation is Trinitarian. The three persons of the Godhead are all a Savior. God the Father is a Savior. God the Son is a Savior. God the Holy Spirit is a Savior. And they work together in perfect unity and harmony in one saving enterprise. That is why when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because the Father is a Savior, the Son is a Savior, the Spirit is a Savior. And that baptismal formula in Matthew 28 verse 19 is a recognition that all three persons of the Godhead are mighty to save unto the uttermost. So critical is this truth that J.I. Packer writes, quote, the Trinity is the basis of the gospel, and the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action, close quote. Packer is spot on. The gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. Writing his famous introduction to Volume 10 of John Owen, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, John uh, J.I. Packer succinctly summarizes the gospel in three words. Write down these three words, and you have the most compact succinct statement of the gospel. God saves sinners. God the Father saves sinners. God the Son saves sinners. And God the Holy Spirit saves sinners. And they work together in this one mission of salvation with perfect unity and harmony. By way of introduction still, as we prepare to to look at this passage, I want to set before you just some initial observations of verses 3 through 14 that I think will help lay a foundation and and frame our understanding of these verses. Uh, The first is that this verses 3 through 14, is one continuous sentence in the original Greek. As Paul wrote this, he intended this to be one unit of thought. And we see God the Father in verses 3 through 6, God the Son in verses 7 through 12, and God the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And for us to see the whole is breathtaking. It's like flying over Manhattan, downtown New York City. It's far more breathtaking to see the entire skyline at once than to simply see each individual building just one at a time separated from the other buildings. What Paul is giving us here is a flyover of the landscape of salvation. The second thing that I would want you to note is that this is a doxology. Now, this is not a dry classroom lecture on theology. It is theology, but it is theology on fire. Uh, The intent here, as well as the reality of this, Paul is lit up within his heart and soul with the magnificence of the Trinity in salvation. And I pray that every one of us here tonight will be caught up in the contagious enthusiasm of the Apostle Paul, and that we too will rise up and bless the name of the Lord with a worshipful heart. The third thing that I would draw to your attention, and this is a, a very noteworthy observation, is that it presupposes how well taught the Ephesians were in the doctrine of the Trinity. That Paul could begin this letter in such a matter is an indication that they were rooted and grounded in the doctrine of the Trinity. This is not the way you start a letter unless the recipient is well taught in what you are saying. And it shows the the great doctrinal profundity that had been brought to this church as they understood the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their inner workings together. Also, I would have you note that these verses span the the, the eternities and time. This begins in eternity past. And it consummates in eternity future, and it spans the breadth of time. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and so also is His salvation from everlasting to everlasting. It began in eternity past. It is brought to climax in eternity future, and it, it, it spans the entirety of time also you need to note that Paul is not dealing here with nations and large people groups, but individuals within nations and individuals within people groups whom God the Father has set His heart upon for His saving purposes. And the other thing that I would have you to note still by way of introduction is to remind you that as Paul writes this he is chained to Roman soldiers he is in under house arrest he is in Rome he is confined like an animal in a house for 2 years uh, this active dynamic man who is on the go for God is now hemmed in to this house in 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 Rome He is chained to the praetorian guard, and yet, as Paul writes this, though his body is in prison, nevertheless, his soul and his spirit is soaring to the heights of heaven. And this is an indication for every one of us here tonight that no matter where you find yourself circumstantially in life, no matter how difficult the hour, no matter how great the adversity may be, nevertheless your heart and your inner person is seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus at the throne of grace. Well, all of that is to orient us now to this wonderful Trinitarian passage And I want you to note first, I have three headings tonight as we look at this passage. And I want you to note first, it's very simple, the Father saves. Beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul begins at the trigger point of salvation that everything is flowing from God the Father. He begins, "'Blessed be the God and Father,' Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not blessed be the God, the God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The focus is uniquely upon God the Father. In salvation, everything begins with God the Father. It begins with His sovereign will. The Father is the fountain of all grace. He is the source of all grace and it will be mediated by his son and it will be applied by his spirit but the source of this grace is God the Father and that's why he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ this word blessed means praise be to God the Father uh, it, it is a Greek word from which we derive the English word eulogy it is someone who gives a a good word when someone has passed away, speaks highly of that particular person. That's the very word that Paul is using here as he speaks the best word that he possibly can of God the Father. Please note, who has blessed us. He has graced us. He has favored us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every once in a while, I'll have someone come up to me as I travel around and preaching and will say, have you had the second blessing? And I'll say, second blessing? Brother, I've had every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what this text says, that the alpha and the omega of blessedness has been bestowed upon me and upon you in Christ. He, he, has, he has lavished His blessing upon us. And this blessing, note, it's in the heavenly places. Uh, it's far greater than if it was in a bank account or, or in a stock portfolio or is found on, in Wall Street. No this is in the heavenly places. Uh, It's what money can't buy and death can't take away, where where there is no recession, where where there is no financial depression, reserved in heaven for us. And it is all in Christ in verse 3. Every blessing from the Father is in Christ there is not one drop of blessing outside of Christ. To be in Christ is to be in the sphere of every blessing from the Father, but to be outside of Christ is to be cut off from all blessing. And so, Paul now lays out the full spectrum of the blessing of the Father. And it really runs like a river through this entire passage. And He will say in verse 3 that the Father has blessed us. In verse 4, He has chosen us. In verse 5, He has predestined us. In verse 6, He has graced us. In verse 8, He has lavished grace upon us. In verse 9, the Father has made us know His will. Uh, In verse 10, He has... uh, He he has uh, purposed salvation for us. He has summarized, He is summarizing all things in Christ for us in verse 11. He is working all things after the counsel of His will, verse 11. He is to be praised in verses 6, 12, and 14. The Father has sealed us in verse 13. He has given us the Spirit as a pledge in verse 14. Please do not miss the heavy emphasis of the saving activity of God the Father. And so often we simply think of Christ alone as being a Savior. And He is our Savior. He is the Savior of the world, John 4, verse 42. But so also is the Father, and so also is the Spirit and we would have but a a limited, restricted, minuscule understanding of salvation. What Paul is doing here is taking us up to the mountain peak to give us the broadest perspective, to allow us to see salvation from the wide-angle lens, to, to allow us to see the fullness of our salvation. And in order to put to even begin to put our arms around the the magnificence of God's grace. We have to see it in light of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And collectively, we are enabled to see something of a far greater perspective of His grace. Now, as we're thinking about God the Father, I want us to look now at verses 4, 5, and 6. He has already said that, that it is the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so Paul wants to zero in on the Father. And the order here is important. First the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. And there is a procession here. Notice how verse 4 begins, just as. That's important. Please note in your translation, it is not a new sentence that starts in verse 4. The sentence began in verse 3. This is not a new thought. This is now the continuation of what Paul has said in verse 3, that it is the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and now, in verse 4, He now enlarges upon the, the beginning of this blessing. So, He says, just as He chose us. Every time I come to this verse, my heart flutters still to this day that He chose us Please note, this does not say, we chose Him. It says, He chose us. The Mississippi River is running north to south, not south to north. This is flowing top to bottom. This originates with the sovereign will of God. This is initiated by the sovereign will of God long before you and I were even born. Notice, just as He, God the Father, chose us. This word, chose, is very important. It really leaps off the page, quite frankly, now, this word chose means that he selected out of many possible choices. And the word was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe David when it was time to fight Goliath. And he went down to the river bed and he chose five stones for his slingshot. Now, I promise you there were more than five stones in that riverbed, but he chose out from among the many five that would suit his purposes perfectly. For reasons known to David, he chose these five to bring down the giant Goliath. It's the very same word that is used here, that out of the entire human race, God made a distinguishing choice of those whom He would save. And this verb, chose, is what we call in the reflective, is a reflective uh, verb, which simply means this, God chose by Himself and for Himself." It was not based upon anything that God foresaw in the One who was chosen. In fact, if if it was simply foresight towards you and me, all God would see is that we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has turned to his own way. No, the choice originates in God Himself. God has chosen all by Himself, and God has chosen for Himself, notice, says us. And this us represents a large multitude so great that this group cannot be numbered. When John will see this group in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, he sees myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands whom the father has chosen to be in heaven he says we are chosen in him referring to in christ the choice is based upon what christ would do on our behalf the choice was made because of the perfection of Christ it had nothing to do with us. In fact, his choice of us is not because of us, his choice of us is in spite of us. Notice when he chose us before the foundation of the world. If, you, if you've been reading your Bible for any length of time, you know when this choice was made. Spurgeon said, God would have had to have chosen me before the foundation of the world. He would have never chosen me after He made me. Well, long ages ago, before time began, in eternity past, before anyone here tonight was created or born, before this world even came into existence, God who is always previous, God made His sovereign choice of those whom He would save. And many ask, why did God not choose all? Well, the real question is, why did God choose any? An even bigger question is, why didn't He choose you? And why did He choose me, if in fact you have been chosen? That is the burning issue, that God would choose any of the rebellious, disobedient, defiled, worldly, ungodly, out of the entire human race this is beyond our comprehension, that God would choose rebels, that God would choose those who have committed the high act of cosmic treason against Almighty God, that He would set His heart upon us. And He tells us why, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us that we would one day stand in His presence and be conformed to the image of His Son and be robed in the perfect righteousness of His Son and be as conformed to the image of His Son as a finite human being could be. He's chosen us not simply for heaven, but He has chosen us for holiness. This is what God the Father has done. John Stott calls this truth of divine election a divine revelation, not a human speculation. No no human mind would have ever conceived the doctrine of sovereign election. This has to be God's truth because no human would have ever concocted or designed such an extraordinary truth like this. And Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to this teaching as a statement, not an argument. And Paul is simply stating it. There's nothing to debate. There is no argument on the table. It is a pronouncement of the fact of the reality of salvation. And J.C. Ryle asserts that this truth stated here is in simplest and most undeniable language," close quote. Listen, it's not hard to understand. It may be hard to swallow. It's not hard to understand. Anyone who can read black print on white paper and have two brain cells touching between their ears can clearly see what Paul is asserting and stating here. And James Montgomery Boyce states, election eliminates all grounds for boasting. That is why salvation's blessings have come to be ours by election alone close quote. This is the teaching of the whole Bible, from cover to cover. Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I translated this very carefully out of the Greek, and here's how it literally reads. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus meant what He said and said what He meant. He said in John fifteen nineteen, I chose you out of the world. Please note, he didn't choose the world. He chose you and me out of the world. Paul writes in Romans 9, verse 18, he has mercy upon whom he has mercy, and he has compassion upon whom he has compassion, and he hardens the rest. So then it does not dep- depend upon the man who wills, or upon the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy." Colossians 3, 12, Thessalonians, 1:4, 2 Thessalonians 2:13, 2 1, 4, Thessalonians 2, 13, Timothy two ten, Titus 1, 1, James 2, 5, Peter 1, 1. If you want the rest of the verses, I have a 600-page book out in the lobby. And there are so many verses, they finally had in the index to go from single space to double space. They still couldn't get it in. The index is triple spaced for, to pull together 600 pages of verses that teach and affirm and speak with one voice the sovereign will of God in salvation. Look at the end of verse 4, if you will. In love. He predestined us. Would you please note this is not a harsh doctrine. This is a gloriously loving doctrine. And there was a time in my Christian life before I came to understand this truth, I thought it was a harsh truth. I thought it was a horrible truth. But I had veils over my eyes until that time when God allowed me to see what was so crystal clear in His Word and to see that it was in love He predestined us. The word predestined here means the destination is determined before the journey begins. Uh, The word predestination here means that God guarantees the end before the beginning that God guarantees the ultimate salvation of all whom He has chosen. All those whom the Father chose in eternity past, the horizon has already been marked out where the final destination for the journey will end. He predestined us to adoption as sons. This is the highest of all blessings. And this is even higher than being justified by faith. When we are justified by faith, we stand before God as a a guilty sinner, and by faith in Christ, God the Father declares us to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But adoption takes it further. By the doctrine of adoption, that same judge rather than walking out of the courtroom, comes down off of the bench and says, I want you to come home with me. You are now adopted into my family. And everything that I have and everything that I own and everything that I possess is now immediately yours. The Puritans well understood that in the ladder of salvation, in the the order of the blessings of salvation, adoption was at the at the very highest apex. That we're more we have more than salvation, we have sonship. And we have more than simply forgiveness, we're in the family. That is what Paul wants to remind the Ephesians, and all of this through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will. If any one of us tonight thinks of this as a hard doctrine, it is only because we're looking at it incorrectly if we truly understand this towering transcendent truth of the sovereign election of God the Father, if we are to see it correctly as the Bible presents it, it is always seen as a truth of extraordinary, unparalleled, immense, infinite love according to the kindness of His will. If you would, turn back with me to Romans 8 just for a moment, Romans 8 and verse 28. And I want to just draw something to your attention very quickly, how much God the Father is in the driver's seat of salvation. In Romans 8, in verse 28, Paul writes, and we know. In other words, this is Christianity 101. This is kid stuff. Uh, This is kindergarten-level, entry-level Bible truth and Bible doctrine, and we know. If you're saved, you know this, that God, and when he says God, is referring to God the Father… To be distinguished from God the Spirit in verses 26 and, and 27, and to be distinguished from God the Son in verse 32. So, verse 28, God is God the Father. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I want you to note the pronouns in verses 29 and, and, and verse 30. This will be worth getting in your car and driving here tonight to see this. If you have a pen, I want you to draw a circle around every one of these third-person singular pronouns, and I pray that they will leap off the page tonight and grab you by the lapel and that you'll never forget this. For those whom He, who's the He? God the Father. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, there again, the He is distinguished from His Son. So that he would be the, that he refers to the Son would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, that refers to God the Father, he also called, that's God the Father. And these whom he called, that's God the Father, he also justified, that's God the Father. And these whom he justified, that's God the Father, he also glorified. Do you see that it is God who is driving this? entire enterprise of salvation, it is God the Father. And He will do it in perfect cooperation with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But it is God the Father who has purposed it, God the Father who has planned it, God the Father who has predestined it, and it is God the Father working by the Son and the Spirit who calls, who justifies, and who glorifies. What a Savior is God the Father. It is the Father who foreknows, the Father who predestines, the Father who calls, the Father who justifies, and the Father who glorifies. All glory to our Father in heaven. So, come back to Ephesians 1. I I just had to take us to that Romans 8 passage. And so, back in Ephesians 1, as we come now to verse 6, no wonder Paul responds the way he does. He's sitting in this little house under arrest, chained to Roman soldiers, and yet his heart is leaping out of his chest, and his spirit is soaring to the, to the third heaven, to the throne of grace. When he says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, there can be no other response. It is this theology that produces this doxology. It is this truth that causes the heart to worship God. And then he adds, which He, God the Father, freely bestowed on us. Who bestowed grace? God the Father bestowed grace upon us in the Beloved. Please note, capital B, if you have a good English translation, that is to indicate this refers to none other than the object of the Father's love, supreme love, the Lord Jesus Christ, All of this is because He chose us in Christ. Paul's response here must be our response tonight or we don't get it. We too must rise up and bless the Father because of His gracious choice of us before time began. The higher our view of God... The higher will be our worship of God. And the more we have base little trivial thoughts about God, so our worship of God will be trivial and base. So the Father saves. You see that? The Father saves. And you need to praise God. Every day while you're on this earth and then one day when you are in heaven, you and I will praise the Father forever and ever and ever because of the infinite grace he has bestowed upon us. But now, second, I want you to note not only the Father saves, but as we come to to verse 7, we now move from God the Father, now the focus is upon God the Son, and God the Son is also a Savior of sinners. And the salvation that the Father planned and predestined in eternity past is now accomplished and achieved within time 2,000 years ago. The Father planned it. The Son now purchased it. And so we begin reading in, in verse 7, in Him, the Him refers to Christ who is the beloved at the end of verse 6. In Him, we, the we refers to all of us who were chosen before the foundation of the world. In Him, we, not the world, but we have redemption. That is one of the most glorious words in the entire Bible. The word redemption is a compound word, and it means it means to pay a ransom price in order to secure the freedom of one who is held captive as a slave. It speaks of how all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Adam's race were born into this world in bondage and in slavery to sin. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. We entered this world with original sin charged against our account and a ball and chain of guilt around our soul. And the sin nature of Adam has been transmitted from generation to generation, and, and we have an inherited a, a sin nature that drives us to, to sin. And then we commit acts of sin. And because of this, we are the slaves of sin. We entered this world in obedience to sin, who is our master and we were slaves of Satan as well. But through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, as Jesus was lifted up to die for us and and bore our sins and bore our iniquities in His body, by the shedding of His blood and the, the sacrifice of His life, Jesus Christ has broken the shackles of our slavery to sin and our slavery to Satan. And if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And that is what this word redemption means. It means to liberate one from misery. It means to release one by the payment of a price, to free one from slavery, to pay the ransom in order to secure the liberty of one who has been held hostage. In Him, we have this redemption. It is through the power of the cross that we have been set free from the tyranny of our transgressions and from our slavery to our sin. And how did this happen? He tells us, through His blood. A clear reference to the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, substitutionary, vicarious death of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. and, And through that death, Jesus propitiated the righteous anger of God towards us. Through His death upon the cross, the shedding of His blood for our sins, He appeased and and placated the holy wrath of God toward us. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And through His death upon the cross, He has reconciled holy God, and sinful man, and brought the two together through the blood of His cross. And through His death, He has redeemed us and bought us and purchased us. Therefore, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we must glorify God with our body. What power there is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 9, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Hebrews 9, all things have been cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 10, 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18, you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I could go on all night citing verse after verse that speaks of the power that is in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as He died in our place, as He bore our sin, as He provided the only covering for our sin. And then he adds the forgiveness of our trespasses. This word forgiveness means that He has canceled out the penalty and the guilt of our sin. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Listen, you can measure the North Pole from the South Pole, but you cannot measure the east from the west. Every time you turn that globe and try to go east, the west is coming back around the other way. That's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. He has taken our sins, he has buried them in the sea of his forgetfulness. He has taken our sins and placed them behind his back. He has taken our sins and remembered them no more. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. It says according to the riches of His grace. You and I cannot even begin to comprehend how rich God is in grace. For God to forgive us according to, meaning in direct proportion to, the infinite, fabulous riches of His grace means that He has poured out forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness full forgiveness, free forgiveness, forever forgiveness, such that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. When He died upon the cross, He said, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The atonement has been made. Reconciliation has been accomplished. Wrath has been propitiated, says, which He lavished upon us in verse 8. God hasn't just measured out His grace as though with an eyedropper, just little tiny drops of forgiveness here and there, swung open the windows of heaven and there are oceans galaxies universes of grace that has flowed from his throne of grace like a deluge upon our sin i'm going to fast forward to verse 12 to the end," meaning for this purpose, that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and to hope in Christ means to believe in Christ. The word hope in the New Testament refers to a steadfast assurance, not like we use it like, I hope it would rain today. No, hope in the Bible speaks of a positive, rock-ribbed confidence in a fact. We who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. There is some question as to who the his is, to the praise of his glory. It's possible it refers to the glory of, to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ who has accomplished this redemption. But there are many strong exegetes who fully believe that the governing antecedent in verse 12 is in reality in verse 3 and in verse 6, that all of this still goes back to the praise of the glory of the Father who chose us in Christ and who sent Christ into this world and who took our sins and laid them upon Christ and who has raised Christ from the dead, and who has seated Christ at His right hand, and who has given all judgment to Christ, and who has given all authority in heaven and earth to Christ, that again this comes back to the Father, to the praise of the glory of His grace. In reality, there are verses like this in which the Trinity is so interwoven in their saving purposes that it's hard to parse and to separate the working of one from the working of the other because, as Jesus said in John 10 verse 30, "'I and the Father are one in our saving purposes.'" finally, I want you to note in verse 13 and 14, the Spirit saves. We have noted that the Father saves, verses 3 through 6, and we've noted that the Son saves, verses 7 through 12, but now the Spirit saves. And this last aspect of saving grace is is applied by the working of the holy spirit the father planned it and the father purposed and predestined it it is the son who has who has purchased it but now it is the spirit who applies it and brings it home to the heart and seals it in the life of the one who believes and those whom the father chose are those for whom the Son died, are those in whom the Spirit applies this grace. The the Father, Son, and Spirit all working in perfect unity to save one and the same sinner. So notice in verse 13, as we bring this study of the Trinity and salvation to conclusion. In Him, referring to in Christ, and you've surely noticed already that everything is in Christ. We are blessed in Christ, verse 3, chosen in Christ, verse 4, graced in Christ, verse 6, redeemed in by Christ, verse 7, purposed in Christ, verse 9, we hope in Christ, verse 12, we are sealed in Christ, verse 13. Everything is within the sphere of Christ. I want to say it again. There is no salvation outside of the person and work of Christ. Here is the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. Peter said before the Sanhedrin, there is salvation in no other name, For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus has an exclusive monopoly on access to the Father. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. In Him... You, and the you refers to all who were chosen and and all who were predestined and, and all who were redeemed by Christ at the cross. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth. No one is saved without hearing the message of the truth. That's why we preach, that's why we witness, that's why we send missionaries. That's why we go where the gospel has has never been preached, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. I know what someone thinks when they hear this truth, well, if all the elect are going to be saved, then, then why witness? Listen, not only has God appointed the end, He has appointed all of the means to accomplish that end. And the means that God has sovereignly appointed is the preaching of the gospel, the prayer for the lost, the living of a godly and and holy life, the sending out of missionaries. All of that is predestined. In fact, verse 11 says, everything is predestined. Look at it in verse 11 having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, not some things, not a few things, not a lot of things, not most things. God works all things after the counsel of His will, prosperity and adversity, life and death, It's all according to the sovereign plan of Almighty God in heaven. All of our days were written in His book, when as yet there was not one of them. And so, even for those who were chosen for salvation, God will send a preacher, a missionary, a godly mother a next-door neighbor, a football coach, whoever it is, to bring the gospel to them. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, I want to say it one more time, no one in the history of the world has ever been saved without hearing the message of the truth. The gospel of our salvation, having also believed, no one will ever be saved without believing what they have heard. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know how this works? God the Father All who believe in Christ, and by the way, it's the Holy Spirit who gives the gifts of repentance and faith. All who believe are sealed in Christ, meaning they can never fall out of Christ. Once in Christ, never out of Christ. Spurgeon said, Noah fell down many times in the ark. He never once fell out of the ark you may fall in Christ, you will never fall out of Christ. We are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit by the Father. It is the Father who wraps you up in Christ with the Holy Spirit that is as eternally secure as anything or anyone can possibly be. You would have to be greater than Jesus Christ, greater than the Holy Spirit, and greater than God the Father for you to slip through the cracks. You're good, but you're not that good. You're not even close to being stronger than the Father, stronger than the Spirit, and stronger than the Son. In reality, we are triply, triple secure in our salvation, we're in Christ, surrounded, sealed by the Spirit, by the Father. Verse 14, who, referring to the Holy Spirit, is given, and let me add, given by the Father, as a pledge, meaning a down payment guaranteeing future possession who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Without unraveling every little phrase there, that simply means you are as certain for heaven this moment as though you have already been there 10,000 years. this means it's a done deal. That He saves unto the uttermost all those who were chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed with the Spirit. It is as though you've been there 10,000 years. That is why in Romans 8, what I just read you, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. It's already happened in the mind of God. And God is immutable. And God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. You're already glorified in the mind, in the saving, eternal purpose of God. What a Savior the Trinity is. And notice the end of verse 14. All of this is to the praise of His glory. And this can be taken to the praise of the glory of the Spirit... But I think more correctly, it's still going back to what was set in motion in verse 3, to the praise of the glory of the Father, who is the one who put us in Christ, who is the one who has sent the Spirit, who is the one who sealed us in Christ with the Holy Spirit. It is to the praise of the glory of the Father. God the Father is a Savior. God the Son is a Savior. And God the Holy Spirit is a Savior. They all work together in perfect unity to save one and the same elect. There are some who think that the Father chose one group by simply looking down the tunnel of time to see who would believe in Christ, that the Son saved a totally different group by dying for everyone, and then the Spirit saves yet a third different group by just tugging and wooing. And by that understanding, they have fractured the Godhead And they have gotten on three different horses and ridden off in three different directions. But what this text teaches and what the rest of the Bible teaches is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have focused all of their saving activity and work upon one and the same group. It is those whom the Father chose, is those whom the Son has died for, is those whom the Spirit has drawn to Christ and, been, and seals in Christ. So as I bring this to a close, one day when you and I stand in heaven and we stand in the bright light of heaven, and the crown is given to us, and we are crowned by the Lord Himself, well done, good and faithful servant. That crown will stay on our head for about a millisecond, and we will take that crown and cast it back at His feet. Because He is the one who chose us. He is the one who predestined us. He is the one who redeemed us. He is the one who sealed us. He is the one who preserved us. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As I now close this, as you find yourself here tonight, if you're without Christ... If you're outside of Christ, if you have come to the awareness all the more that this is so far beyond me, the reality of this has never been real in my life, I want you to know that in order to be saved, you simply need to listen to the truth and to believe in God's Son. And you have heard the truth tonight. You have heard the truth of the cross, that Jesus is the virgin born Son of God, who lived a sinless and perfect life, the life that you could never live, He has lived in your place, and He went to the cross, and He died for sinners. He was lifted up upon that cross, and Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us. That in His death upon the cross, He purchased the only salvation that there is for anyone to have… He was taken down from the cross, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day God raised him from the dead. He came walking out of that tomb, a risen, living, victorious Savior. He has ascended on high, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who has the son has life, he who does not have the son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Commit your life to Christ. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves to receive sinners. He's not come for good people. He's come for bad people. He is the physician who come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. And Jesus said, Him who comes unto Me, I will in no wise cast out. He will receive you, He will gather you in in His arms of grace. He will clothe you with His perfect righteousness. He will forgive you all of your sins. He will wipe the slate clean. He will give you a new heart and a new life. And one day when you die, and you will, He will take you to the Father's house. And there you will spend all eternity with Him the greatest news you'll ever hear, and you need to believe now. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the Trinity in salvation, and the gospel is the proclamation of the Trinity In action. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, this is so far beyond our earthly thoughts. It is as though heaven has come down into this room tonight, and your mind has been unveiled to us, and the staggering truth of the Trinity at work in salvation has been clearly articulated to us tonight by the Apostle Paul. We gladly receive these words. I pray, Father, for every one of us in this room tonight that we will respond by saying praise to the glory of His grace.